I'm good. Hello, welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Death. I'm Fran Solomon. And I'm Andy McNeil. And we're thrilled to be your host for these conversations. Let's Talk Death is brought to you by Heal Grief, a social support network creating community after someone has died. Everything we do is inspired by our core belief that no one should ever grieve alone. Our goal with this program is to have a friendly chat with some amazing people so we can help normalize and educate our Hill Grief community. Our guest today is Francesca Lynn Arnoldy. Francesca is a community doula and death literacy advocate. She is a researcher with the Vermont Conservation Lab and was the original course developer of the University of Vermont's end of life doula professional certificate programs. Francesca authored Cultivating the Doula Heart, Map of Memory Lane, and The Death Doula's Guide to Living Fully and Dying Prepared. A trusted thought leader, Francesca has been featured in articles by The New York Times, Fast Community, Newsweek, The Verge, and AARP. She regularly presents on life and death topics, hoping to encourage people to support one another through times of intensity. You can find her contemplating birth, death, and life with the doula heart at francescolinarnoldy.com. Francesca, we are um, delighted to have you as a guest on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Francesca, before we speak about your work, I'd like to ask, was there a life-changing event that led to it? I feel like a series of life-changing events. I think the first that stands out in my mind that only planted seeds, you know, only upon reflection do I see how that changed the trajectory of my life was my aunt's death. And she was my aunt Nancy. And she was like a second mother to me growing up. We lived on the same road. I grew up with her kids. We played all the time. She pulled my teeth because my mom didn't want to. She brushed my hair. She taught me how to swim and how to dive. Just so many treasured memories with her. We worked together as I got older at my grandmother's gift shop. And um, we were just really, really close. So in her 40s, which is now, as I'm in my 40s, it's hitting me even harder. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she was so full of life. I mean, she had a literal skip in her step. And that disease was just so heartbreaking for us all. And it really... It didn't rob her of her zest. She she held on to that right up to the end, but it robbed us of many decades that we could have spent with her. And so that was my real introduction to a profound major loss. And during that time, thankfully, looking back, I was able to be led by my heart, by my intuition. And so when her time was really short, my cousins let me know, I, before I went down to see her, I decided to write a little note to her and I rolled it up and I'm looking at it right now. And I tucked it into this little bear stuffed bear's arms that she had given me. And I grabbed it and I brought that down. And I wasn't sure if I was going to do anything with it or if it would just be something I would hold. And so when I arrived there to the hospital room, she was pretty groggy. She was really in and out and her room was full of people. We didn't know what we were doing when we talk about death literacy. I mean, we were just lost. We were bereft, you know, we were experiencing anticipatory grief and it was awkward. We didn't know how to spend our time and what to do with ourselves. 
But the night kind of evolved. A lot of people ended up leaving. I ended up staying. And eventually I asked my uncle and my cousins if I could have a little bit of time with her alone. And they granted me that. And I'm so grateful. And so I crawled up into her hospital bed and I had the bear and I unfurled the note and I read it to her. And it was really just a simple expression of gratitude of how much I appreciated our connection of some of our favorite memories and just how much I loved her. And at that time, she was so close to dying. She was within hours. We, you know, we would soon find out. And she was so tired that she couldn't even open her eyes, but she whispered that she loved me. And, you know, those moments really helped to carry me through my time of grief. And I ended up naming our firstborn after her. He has her maiden name as his first name in her honor. And, you know, she's still a part of my life. She, my kids know her. They know the essence mm -hmm. of her. So I think even though I didn't at that moment become a death doula or a hospice volunteer or truly um, embracing that part of my identity and my role, it definitely planted seeds that were able to lead me in this direction eventually. Yeah, I, I hear so many foundations of what you're doing now, even in this that story then. And one of the things, and again, I don't want to take us off subject, but that that I always, always find interesting is um, in our society, how we we decide what losses are are the most challenging losses for different people. And and we give different titles to them. And one of the things I've learned over the years in this field is to allow individuals to tell you what losses are the most significant in their life, because we don't know what a person's relationship was or what a person meant to another person. Um, doesn't matter the title, mom or dad or aunt or uncle or cousin uh, or just neighbor. Um, you never know uh, how people touch our lives and continue to touch our lives. Absolutely. I totally agree. And in the doula course, we talked about the hierarchy of grief, you know, who has yeah. it worse, who has and how unnecessary that is. And to just make space to honor whatever that loss means and whatever the personal reactions to the loss might be. Yeah, we, yeah. Have, we have a belief here at Heal Grief. The deeper the love, the deeper the grief. It's not relational. It's love. The deeper the love, the deeper the grief. And who's anybody to judge, you know, how the depth of one's relationship, the depth, the depth of one's love. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so first of all, thank you for sharing that. That um I, I know that many of our listeners are gonna are going to just connect with with your story there. Um, but I am curious. So as you as you kind of came along. And you you decided to move this direction in your life. A um, couple of things about it that I always I'm always curious about with folks. One is how you did start to move in that direction, and as you did, are there things that you were surprised about um, that you weren't necessarily expecting? Um, Definitely. So after my aunt died, I met my now husband. We had a couple of kids, and that process of being pregnant, birthing, parenting really opened up my mind and heart to wanting to support other people through that journey. So I became a birth doula and okay. a postpartum doula and a childbirth educator and did that work on a steady basis for a handful of years. And then in our personal life, we experienced a number of losses right in a row. 
And so this included two of my grandfathers, my father-in-law and our pet dog. And so each loss, as you said, meant something different, affected us each differently. And then my heart and mind were open to wanting to support people through that journey. And through those times, I noticed how I would naturally shift into my doula presence in the face of something that's so mysterious, that's so unknown, because whether it's birth or death, we don't know exactly how it's going to unfold. We don't know the pacing. And we don't know the needs of the person who is actually experiencing it and the needs of the people surrounding them. So there are a lot of similarities there, which I was not expecting. That was definitely a surprise to me. And especially when I was supporting my maternal grandfather through his dying, I stepped in to be closer. So as a doula, I kind of step in or step away, depending on the comfort level of other people around me to make sure that I'm addressing any gaps there that may arise. And so with my grandfather, it was really kind of stepping in to be be a primary care person for the very end and to be his one person vigil for his final night and to be there in the morning. And what that did was it allowed for my other loved ones to remain in their comfort zones and to remain true to their own identities. So for my grandmother, that meant that she was coming in and out a lot. She was visiting, but she was also hostessing. She was cooking things. She was fixing things for people. She was making coffee and snacks. And that's where she felt like herself the most. And that's where she felt safe. So I enabled her to kind of be in that role and come and go as she needed without guilt or without worrying that my grandfather was being neglected. And for, you know, my mom, she needed a lot of fresh air. She needed to go for walks. She needed to sort of move the experience through her body physically. And that's Mm -hmm. her. And for my uncle, um, his happy place was not so much in the room. He didn't feel comfortable going in, but he was um, being tended to by his mom. That was his happy place. (laughs) So he was the recipient of that. And another uncle was, was, kind of, um, you know, connected to the experience and involved, but from a distance, he didn't want to be at the home. So we were keeping him up to date. So everybody was able to be themselves and be where they needed to be. And I could kind of move in. And it felt very natural to me. I always encourage people, though, if the loss is hitting very close, don't sacrifice your own identity and role to kind of pick up where other people might need it, call in more layers of support whenever possible. But for me, that felt right. It felt natural. And I said to myself and the universe, I think silently that this is what I wanted to explore next. So that's interesting. (laughs) I was going to ask you about that. You know, how is that? I can understand how it would be um, for a from a professional perspective when you're helping with others. But how is that for your own experience? And you just answered my question on that. And I also want to add that I believe that probably birth and death are the two most spiritual things one can experience. And although we really don't know much about death, um, research suggests it is truly a very spiritual um, transition. Yeah, I mean, I think it it certainly can be, and it is awe-inspiring to witness and to support because you don't know exactly how long it's going to take and how people are going to respond. And there are so many facets of our personhood that kind of come 
to the surface in those times of intensity. And it's like time stands still. Time doesn't make sense anymore. It's not even a thing. It just slows. And the rest of our to-do lists just get blurry in the background. And it's this time of full presence and connection. And it's unbelievable. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of our our listeners may not even know what a death doula is. It might be a new term for them or just what what is a death death doula? Um, what, yeah. So a, a doula is a non-medical support person. So doulas operate outside of the healthcare system and some doulas practice as volunteers. Some practice for pay so that it would be privately paid. There aren't really established insurance coverage benefits, to my knowledge at this point, although that might change. There are some for birth doulas, but not many. And we often look to birth doulas because they kind of formalized in the 90s, but it's still, it's not a licensed role. There's no overarching body. So people have different interpretations of what it actually means to be a doula. And for some people, they feel like they embrace that term And they've maybe learned from older generations or other doulas and other people have taken a more formal training program. I think it's a really large table. I think that there is plenty of room for anybody who wants to kind of join in in whatever capacity. And in the training program that I created at UVM, and and I teach at a number of other training programs like the Thanatology Certificate for the Art of Dying Institute, People come in with lots of different goals and interests, so they may already be working in end-of-life care, and they may already have an established, you know, title, but they want to add more ideas, or they want to revisit their initial passion for the work, they want to heal some wounds that they're carrying themselves, and so it's, it's a really beautiful community and a wide array of people. I have people I know who say, you know, I'm a nurse with a doula heart, and physicians that have taken training programs and so they kind of fold it in in different ways but for me what I like to focus on is planning preparing and processing which is pretty similar to what I do as I'm supporting somebody through pregnancy and preparation for birth and that can look different from person to person but it can be completing advanced care documents I've taken some additional training in that sector it could be creating vigil wishes So similar to birth wishes, when someone is actively dying and they are likely no longer communicative verbally, then, you know, how can we kind of set up your atmosphere around you so that it best honors who you are and what feels most safe to you? Always with contingency plans and flexibility, because sometimes things can change, but we can usually, even if we have a total location change and a care plan change, we can still infuse those customized features that make somebody feel like they're still them. It's not just about their disease, but they're still them the whole way through, which is really important. Sometimes it's respite. Um, Sometimes we would support people even through the grieving period afterwards. So with the Vermont Conversation Lab, I ran an intervention with our head of palliative care during the thick of the pandemic that was about story listening. And so it was catching grief stories. And it wasn't mental health support. It it was a one-time session with a trained doula and enabled people to pull together their narrative, their story of that time of loss, which was also really profound for me as a doula. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that description. I think people don't fully understand. And um, 
you know, having worked in a hospice setting, having worked with bereaved people for three decades, what I see is, and I hear so often from people is, man, I wish I would have just had like someone who could have just guided us through this. Like we did, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and you're not necessarily operating on optimal, you know, uh, mind, emotional energy and all of those things. And to have someone at those different points. But as you said, it's so many things. It could be logistics around things. It could be helping people plan events, knowing how to use their time that they have left, or just sitting with a person providing respite so families can have, you know, um, that time that they need. So I thank you for for sharing that. And and um I, I really I really believe that the doula movement will continue to 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 grow. Um, yeah, uh, another aspect. It needs to. It needs I, to. I hope so. I mean, I love that. I think it's really reassuring in terms of death literacy and our willingness to embrace this as mortals. And yeah. another aspect of the work that I really love is remembrance projects and legacy work. So that usually starts as informal life reviews, reminiscing, just sharing stories. And then from there, we can kind of think about, is there something you would like to capture that would be in gift form that we could leave behind to your loved ones. And so I've supported people through the creation of letters and messages and cards, but also recordings. Some people do audio recordings or video recordings, or it could be a scrapbook. And I have a death journal that's it's on my bookshelf in front of me, which is actually a wooden casket. It's my memento mori piece in my home office. And so my death journal is in there and my family knows about it. And I've been compiling it for a number of years now for whenever it is that's my time to die. And in it, there are some tips about providing support and care to me and my wishes for death and disposition with contingency plans, because I really want to take good care of them. And then if my death happens to be unexpected and sudden, they can turn to it during their time of grief and hear messages from me and words of encouragement. And my love is there for them on the page because I have a feeling that my biggest anchor to this life, to this body will be my loved ones and my concern for their well-being going forward. So knowing that I have created this and knowing that they know where it is and how to access it and when to, I think will provide me as much reassurance as it will likely provide them. And what a yeah. gift you're giving them. You're really, you're, you're taking away the guesswork. You know, we, we often hear of, of so many conflicts um, after someone has died over what to do and how to do it. And it creates divisiveness and um, sometimes can break families apart. And so you're really giving them a gift where in the, in the event of your death, they're going to be able to begin their journey of grief and not have to go through this turmoil of guessing. Um, so, so kudos to you. I mean, my my family knows that cobalt blue is my favorite color. My lining in my ca- in my casket's going to be cobalt blue, and when they see cobalt blue down the street, they're going to say, mm. "There's mom," mm. um, with hopefully a smile on their face. So, having those conversations are very important. I do have a question for you, though. Have you found that people well in their life reach out to you to begin this planning as you are doing um, so that in their death, you or someone like you 
is already present and in place with all that information? Sometimes, somewhat, in different forms too. So I'm, I've been doing some workshops, community workshops, like my Working Through Wishes, which is really for any mortal at any time and with any health status. The new book really aims at that, trying to engage with this work upstream. But also people, you know, individuals will reach out to me and they might have something on their minds, kind of a, a to-do list item they want to check off. So it could be someone wanted to write their own obituary. They weren't actually terminally ill. They wanted to do that as a reflective exercise and as something that they have completed. Somebody else wanted to explore green burial options locally. And so as doulas, we are definitely helping to bridge people to resources. And like you said, Andy, you know, we don't know what we don't know. It's really important that doulas do know what's available in our own communities and locally so that we can connect people to the care that they need and deserve. And other times, so I'm holding some retreats and doing some in-person work. And these are largely for people who are in decent health right now and they are yeah. eager to get through some of this work in advance which I think takes a lot of courage but I think it can be really clarifying I think it can be very cathartic and it can really lift a burden in the moment and then as you were saying friend later on for your loved ones yeah you know it, it's interesting you say this one of the things that it's come to my mind numerous times and just programs even for bereaved people when we have a significant loss it that's at those are the times in our lives when we are thinking about our own mortality as well. And, you know, how you provide the support that people need, but also maybe even the opportunity for them to think about their, their own situation and things that they want to do to be prepared. Um, and, and, and it's a delicate balance because they may not be at that place to do that, but I've had so many people when I bring it up to them or, or make a suggestion they, they'll move in that direction because they they are hyper aware and they want to be prepared for their 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 folks as well. Well, Francesca, we actually we're, we're almost out of time. Um, it's a great conversation. Uh, we, we thought it would be. Um, and um, but before we before we uh, uh, end our time together, uh, how can people who are tuning into this, um, how can they connect with you and with your work? What would be the best way? For them to do Through my website is a great way to connect with me and to learn more. You can see my schedule of events, workshops, things that are coming in the future. There's a contact form through my website as well. And then I am on social media. I don't do a lot of time on social media, but I am on there as well. And your website again? Is francescalynarnoldy.com or also contemplativedoula.com. Takes you to the same place. Great. We'll have that on our website and all of our material. Thanks so much. Francesca, we want to thank you so much for being our guest here at Let's Talk Death and for sharing the inspiration behind your work. Truly remarkable. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing for the community. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you to those who are joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Death. If you would like to learn more about Heal Grief, you can visit us at healgrief.org. At healgrief.org, you'll learn more about all of the programs and resources we have here at Heal Grief including our national network of support for grieving young adults called Actively Moving Forward. And if you know of a bereaved adult, refer them to our AMF app, where adults of all ages connect with others experiencing a similar death loss. loss. 
And last, make sure to sign up on HealGrief.org to receive our newsletter and links to future episodes of Let's Talk Death. And so again, thank you for joining us and we will see you next time on Let's Talk Death.